Hello, I'm Robert Pallas, and you're listening to Cut Talks. Double G U double T. Hi, everyone. I'm Maria, and welcome to Gut Talks, WGUWT, a podcast I started to connect, reconnect, and meet like-minded individuals and put some karma on the board. In this episode, we put together an existing segment of Season 3, so instead of listening in batches, you get to listen to the entire conversation. We had over 89,000 downloads to date, starting from zero, with no sponsors, and it's a 100% self-funded podcast. Thank you so much for hanging around and listening to the episodes. And I have one ask only. I'd love to have your feedback to keep the show up to your expectations. So drop me a line at maria at gut.com, And like, share, or leave a review if you can. Now let's get started. Thank you for being on Gut Talks, by the way, Robert. And I want to give a live Shout out as we're recording to Jano Stern, who's your, the co-founder of Death Taylor, who actually, I, I asked him to come to God Talks. Actually, we spoke about it a few months ago. Then I asked him again. He said, I think you should talk to Robert. So I'm like, all right, then. And we obviously met a few years ago, I think. And you were so into blockchain. Now you're still into blockchain, obviously, and AI. And I think that was the trigger because you guys are working on a cool project for the government. So I'm just following on Callum's episode where we talk about how Estonia is innovative and doing lots of things in the digital space with the government supporting this and like creating this trend. You're working on something like that, but we're not just going to talk about this. We're going to talk about other things as well. So how are you? First of all, I'm, I'm great. Thank you, Maria. And thank you for having me and uh, for Jano, for connecting people at the yes. right time. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, the right time because you're like in the midst of this project. But before we get started, I was just scrolling a bit through your LinkedIn also. And I saw that you're into free diving. First of all, just can you say what is free diving for those who are not so sure? And then what is it that got you into this? <laughs> so free diving is a water sport where you go under the water on one breath meaning that you don't use any diving equipment like scuba divers. And for us, uh, it can be both in the pool, which uh, is then uh, measured by time or distance, or then in the open water like ocean or lakes, where you go as deep as possible. We are followed by a rope, which is uh, pre-marked, and you pre-assign the depth that you're going to. You get to the target, you turn around and swim back up. How I got started was uh, traveling. In my first trip to the Philippines, I remember walking past the diving shop and uh, they had a video running with someone uh, going down to some crazy depths. And I was thinking that uh, I can't do it because my ears will start hurting due to the pressure. I had been on the four meter uh, depth in the pool, but that would be my limit. I went back home uh, that day to my hotel and uh, YouTube came to help. Uh, I checked some diving videos and luckily YouTube autoplay gave me uh, like a tutorial of what to do to equalize pressure in in the ears and few days later had the chance to sign up for a course the five now that's that was five years ago and you never stopped like that's what you do every year or so yeah i'm training training for competitions nowadays and uh, most of family travel is uh, designed to have <laughs> diving opportunities but the rest of the family doesn't mind because the places that have uh, diving are 
otherwise pretty cool spots to visit as well. Uh, for example, Cyprus has really good diving. Then the Philippines, Bali, lots of great places to go anyway to spend time next to the sea. So question. So you're from Estonia and obviously it's not that you swim every day, right? But you dive in like cold water, right? So is this what somehow triggered you into exploring free diving, being in the sun? I'm just going to take back this question a bit to who was Robert growing up? How is this free diving coming into play somehow in your subconscious? Mm, good question. As a youngster, I was into triathlon. So uh, water was always a big part of uh, my upbringing. I used to swim five times a week in the pool and uh, I was generally very comfortable with water. A lot of our family activities when I was a kid were related to triathlon camps, triathlon competitions. They were almost always next to a lake. So kids, uh, before even they competed, we were just swimming and jumping around. So that's the, that's the background. Estonia, of course, is a slightly colder place to dive. So the diving season uh, is generally shorter and uh, our access to depth is also very limited because the Estonia's steepest lake is 38 meters and uh, anywhere else in the world you can, you can find deeper depths uh, with much more uh, easier uh, access. So what was your maximum like? today like what did you start with and where did you get to i started with pretty comfortable 16 meters but that was the limit of the like the beginner course so they didn't allow me to go further i don't know what would have been like the, the immediate access but today uh, my record is 66 uh, which i did in croatia uh, last year and uh, so you train multiple times a year i guess right yeah w whenever possible and meanwhile i try to keep fit in the pool okay or in the shower <laughs> <laughs> so growing up you were into triathlons and you were into coding also you started coding at the age of 13. these two things Funnily enough, are slightly related since as a kid, I think I started doing my math home assignments in uh, Python. I realized that why spend 10 minutes doing a task when you can spend 20 minutes trying to automate it Okay. and wrote some scripts to uh, submit the homework assignments for me. But later on, uh, I got interested in writing text-based game, which was a triathlon game for my friends. And to do that, I had to learn some uh, new methods and web programming. I actually took uh, like an open source online uh, forum and I rewrote it to be a triathlon game. Uh, and my best days, I had uh, like 20 active users in, in the end of 90s. And I think total registration uh, count cut to 100 and then uh, my server couldn't handle it because my code wasn't optimized. <laughs> and th that was the days before any of the relational databases. So I, I didn't know SQL or anything like that. Everything was saved in the text files and I had my own uh, algorithms how to store data okay so that's gonna take us to you know a bit uh, the core of this uh, podcast where we're talking about you know ai blockchain uh, you know development because it's not just about the trend and the boss there's uh, lots of work and thought and processes and logic to be behind the scenes but I i'm just curious about how did you also get started with coding because i'm gonna just um jump into this. We, I said we did an episode with Callum Cameron talking about an Australian in Estonia and how Estonia is building like the digital society. And we did one with Karin Kunapas and building the, uh, or co-directing the code, uh, code UV school of coding in Estonia when lots of people and kids, like you're a kid, right? A teenager code already. 
So how did you get into that yourself? I think I was in the beginning, definitely self-taught. I didn't have any mentors and the online resources were much more limited back then. Yeah. But uh, it, it's, it was maybe even a blessing because nowadays, if I look at uh, the landscape, you have to choose from so many directions where, where you could go and the complexity of software has uh, grown significantly. So back then you only had to maybe make a choice between two or three different programming languages. And there was maybe only one or two different sources of knowledge that you would uh, tackle and you, you would you would just trust those uh, resources. And after that, it's trial and error anyway. And your interest was you, you just liked computers or uh, was it linked also? Because did you grow up also like Karen during uh, the Soviet Union? I'm born in the Soviet Union, yeah. And actually yesterday is Estonian uh, Re-Independence Day that was the end of Soviet Union and the start of rebirth of Estonian Republic, so to say. Okay. Uh, I would guess that uh, possibly, but I haven't put too much thought into it. I think I'm just a creative person and at the same time, I'm not artsy. So for me, the creative output would be writing software because okay. like, like, I'm, I'm colorblind. But I'm mat mathematically quite gifted, so it's it's just logical that I I found coding enjoyable uh, quite quickly, and uh, also being able to create stuff that other people use and have fun with that 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 happened to me in early age. Okay, and that's what you still do today. I just want to say the like yesterday, as we're recording this podcast, was like the twentieth of August, uh, because by the time we release um, this podcast, it would be a bit later. So just to mention that one. So you're sure. still uh, building stuff that people use. <laughs> so you co-founded Dev Taylor, which is still uh, running software house, and you're leading the blockchain and AI arm. I would say right. Um, you got into blockchain a little bit uh, before AI. Or you got into both at the same time. I'm just seeing what do we start with. So just let me know. So. There's definitely blockchain much, much earlier. I was in the university. But we can talk about the beginnings of my uh, collaboration with Janno as well. Yeah, let's go for it. And and I know that you wrote a paper that you published on uh, LinkedIn. You were in a video where you said you wrote about blockchain in 2011, right? Yeah. So I, is yeah. this around the time you also met Janno? Uh, no, no, much earlier. We studied together what? before that. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, take us on the journey. So my, my entrepreneurial journey starts with uh, my co-founder Janno inviting me to lunch. At the correct time, I was working as a software engineer, uh, but I was slightly bored at my day job. Okay. Uh, just lack of challenges, I would say, was the main reason. And I, I, I didn't feel like I have a lot of climbing to do in the same company or even in the same industry. So he got me at a time where I was uh, ripe to step in the direction that I would have stepped anyway sooner or later. And I joined him in a startup endeavor where we were building mobile loyalty and uh, mobile banking app for different industries. Like retail was one of our first target customers. And like many startups, we failed to scale and to extend our runway, we started consulting other clients, which now is today's Dev Taylor. Eight years later, we are, we are still at it. Okay. So you started as a startup for fun, like you're trying to build something and then you saw, okay, we can do more with this. So now you're just building for the for others. Well, you're building products for startups and for companies and for governments, right? <laughs> so yes. Okay. What about the? Uh, we're gonna get back into this, but what 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 is it that got you into blockchain? 
And if you can, try to make this, if you want, uh, not too technical for the listeners who are not technical. Okay. I got into blockchain for my motivation to really build the world into more decentralized uh, place, let's say. So uh, main benefit that the blockchain brings is to take away the trust component and uh, the trust component, meaning that two parties can uh, communicate and change information without having an intermediary that they would have to then uh, give their data to and also uh, trust that they wouldn't manipulate or uh, slow down the process in any way. So my first motivation was actually technical <laughs> because I, <laughs> I saw the Bitcoin white paper while I was researching for digital gold project that I was planning to build okay. and Satoshi had beat me to it. So you had kind of a similar idea you wanted to build? Yes, but I couldn't figure out uh, some of the parts and the parts I couldn't figure out is actually what is known today as blockchain. Like how would I uh, put the transactions together so that uh, it wouldn't go through like some central server and the way that blockchain consensus mechanisms work, I didn't have enough background in cryptography to really figure that out. Okay. And what, what did you do then? Did you join? Did you start? Did you join the miners, basically? No, I've, I've never mind. I'm actually <laughs> not uh, interested in the hardware part. I'm like very hardcore software person. <laughs> so okay. I, I keep my work in the software layer. And my beginning, I was just doing research and uh, I was writing some papers for the university. So where, whenever there was university assignment, I would somehow take it and put Bitcoin in it and write about Bitcoin, including my uh, master's thesis. I was studying uh, cybersecurity, so my master's thesis was titled Bitcoin Security, where I just uh, took apart uh, technical and the non-technical challenges uh, of what uh, Bitcoin was able to solve to really become the first decentralized digital currency in the world. And let's say on um, as a percentage now, uh, in terms of projects you guys get at Tef Taylor, what is the percentage of blockchain related projects versus non-blockchain related projects? That's a great question. At the moment, I would say that the blockchain industry is a little bit on a lower end uh, due to funding. So there is not a lot of money to go around to service our like ideal customers, which is in general uh, companies that are starting out or that are scaling up their businesses and uh, they need external help with their software stack. So that is like a slight limitation, but the answer to your question is about 30%. So 30% of our current customer base is heavily based on blockchain, or in fact, uh, their business model couldn't exist if blockchain would not be in the world. Okay, so it's a core component. Uh, and that's yes. in 2023. So how was the tendency from when you got started? Let's say you were into that yourself in 2011. You've been with Def Taylor for eight years. So in the past eight years, uh, what was the tendency? I, I assume it would be growing, but at which rate, more or less? It's uh, it's definitely growing. Like uh, 2018, I was actively uh, fundraising for real-world applications, blockchain uh, startup. And we met with a lot of confusion from the investors' part. Like they didn't know what blockchain was. And that general understanding and uh, knowledge came later in like 2020, 2021, where more like the years where people started really seeing like what the blockchain is and what it could be used for. So our amount of projects, even though I mentioned that funding is uh, down at the moment, 
the amount of projects that we are dealing with is still up and the requests that are coming in have definitely grown. And the other thing is, of course, that in the past, we our, our sales has always been only word of mouth, which means that we haven't really targeted any industry at all. Mm -hmm. We just have worked with cool people who come to us with uh, great ideas and the tar they're targeting towards uh, doing more blockchain stuff as we first of all, we enjoy that a lot. And secondly, this is the one of the core technologies of the future, I believe. So our sales targeting towards blockchain is uh, rather new. So when you are about to, let's say, build on the blockchain, you know, in general, you have to shift your mindset somehow because the logic is different than just building regular software and interactions. Like everything changes. As an example, like the, the way you, you log in, right? Or it is different. The way you, you buy or check out is different. So how did you have to adjust the way you think to, to build this? And it's not just yourself. It's you and your team in general. That's a great point. You, you do have to think in a decentralized manner that everything that you build is going to be accessed out in the public. So the smart contract will uh, run on chain. And indeed, you don't have to only understand yourself. Well, what are the differences between building uh, stuff that runs directly on the server or in a centralized uh, cloud? Then you have to educate the team as well. So the team has to have a, at least general understanding of uh, how blockchains work. And is, is it for everyone or you just have no, it is not for just... it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. But uh, we have like a team of software developers who are excited about learning new technologies and the challenges that come with it. Yeah. Okay. So how do you validate also? How's, what's your approach to validating products before maybe releasing them on the blockchain, right? Well, first of all, to validate the products, it starts uh, before code, right? Yeah. You you start thinking about what is the idea that uh, we are going to build? Is it uh, feasible? What are the tools that we're going to use? Does this idea even need blockchain? So we're not in the business of sticking blockchain everywhere. We are in the business of building the best solutions for the problem. And there has to be a problem before you start yeah. building. You, you cannot make up the problem. Usually the best problems come from the founders or their uh, people around them who are trying to achieve something that is not very easy to achieve with current tools or methods. So they get this startup idea. Hey, guys, let's build something new. Sometimes uh, it's already out there or it could happen that the alternatives are so good that you don't really need another product. Or even if the problem is significant and there is a lot of people in the market who would want to solve the problem, the problem will not have monetary value. So they are not going to be uh, paying for it. And that's another reason when, when you, you maybe wouldn't even build it at all. Only then comes the building phase. Do you get involved in that phase as well then? To... Yes, we, okay. for sure, for sure. Like we, we do qualify our uh, customers uh, into... We, we have a few internal questions that we always ask. And now I'm putting it out there in the public. <laughs> uh, first is that, uh, is this product that should be built Second is that are these the people who should build it? Uh, they are the non-technical team after all. We, can, we only build code. We're not going to market the product and the project. So if they will not be able to pull it to the market, then for us to build it would be just a waste of time. And the third one is access to funds as well. So are these people going to be able to commercialize it? And are they going to be able to pull investor money to keep it growing until 
the app makes money for itself. So what's your model then? Because you work with Prime, from my understanding now, is you work with startups primarily, right? More than large corporations who just want to add a product or optimize a product they have with some new technologies, right? It's primarily startups. Okay. So what's your model? Do, do you partner with them as being their, um, if you want, tech team? You're their tech team. But do you also become equity partners in companies? How do you how do you do this? Because obviously sometimes they don't. From my understanding, also which is quite common, right? In startups, there you need access to to funds, right, on a long term basis. So, uh, how does it work for you? We are very often the sole technical team and technical leadership for our clients, which means that we also participate in cases uh, with their investor meetups and sometimes with their clients if it's a larger B2B application. And for the equity part, for sure, we have built in the past a lot of stuff for uh, Sweat Equity. In the beginning of DevTailer, we made those decisions very easily, too easily, I would say. And in cases, uh, it happened that we built it and then the founders lost interest. So we've gotten much more cautious in applying the three questions to whether or not this is something that we, we should pursue and whether or not we should have equity stake in it. Of course, only building it for equity, that's not an option for us. We also need cash flow because we have people on payroll. And at the same time, uh, we need the other party to have large skin in the game as well because we are minority shareholders in those uh, projects, which means that we cannot take the majority role and uh, building everything for free. And then they will see if they uh, are going to continue it with, uh, are they going to like it or, or not? So they have to bring cash to the table anyway. But uh, having like a software development uh, company, or in our case, I would more call us like product development company, having us on board, it's uh, been pretty good, I think, for a lot of our clients because they know that they can rely on us for long term and the stuff that is outside of uh, software, meaning that what should we build, when should we build, how should we build, those questions they can take to us because they know that we are interested in uh, growing the company, not just to uh, send the next invoice. So let's just wrap up a bit on this chapter. Do you have any story to share where it went great or it went extremely bad? I wouldn't uh, share any extremely bad cases <laughs> on, on, on camera, but for sure, like we are a software company with uh, over like 100 projects. The 100 project mark was uh, reached a few years ago already. So there have been a lot of great cases and some of the startups that we have built have uh, went on to raise multiple millions in funding and are still growing. Is this where like you stop contributing or you are with them all the way through or you help them build their own team internally? It will depend. Uh, In one health tech startup, we did help to build their own team that they onboarded and they took over all of the development. In, you know, when COVID started, uh, access to funds maybe shrank for a lot of industries, but health tech was slightly different. So uh, their solution was able to grab a lot of attention and secure a very large ticket from the investors. And uh, then for them, it was just logical to get the internal team. So I I just want to jump back quickly because we just started with blockchain, moved a bit into product development. I mean, in both cases, it doesn't matter. You mentioned funding in the blockchain space. Is it, I mean, there was a boom clearly when this whole metaverse and Web3 and NFTs, like everything (laughs) started, like if you want bombard all our social media networks <laughs> so and then it kind of slowed down now the next buzz is ai 
right? So I'm asking you this because, you know, you're directly impacted somehow. Your work is impacted, but what happened? So you know what's happening throughout the companies you work for. How is it now? I, I know you had a post on LinkedIn where you were just looking for interesting projects, DAOs, NFT stuff to get involved. That was about five months ago, I think. Did anyone respond to you? And the next part of the question, which I could repeat after, is how is the funding trend in the AI space compared to the blockchain space now? Well, I've been active on LinkedIn now, I think, past eight months. Cannot really attribute to exactly which posts are triggering people. Uh, Usually people don't write you that, hey, I read your post about ABC and uh, I want to learn more. It's generally just that they feel that I'm someone who knows about the space and Mm -hmm. they have a project that they wish to discuss. Sometimes it's like a direct lead for the company. Sometimes it's just someone who is looking to network and bounce uh, ideas off of someone, which uh, both are cool because that's why we are in this space to work with uh, interesting people and solving like important problems in the world. And it doesn't matter generally what technology they use to do so. It just has to be the right uh, tool for the job. For the funding part, I think generally the startup funding has been a little bit slow and slowing down, in fact, over the last eight months, where I believe June and July were the, like the slowest months in the last 18-month cycle in startup funding, both for the global economy uncertainty and the growing interest rates, but uh, also summer months themselves. So there's like a lot of stuff that has come together. And during that time, I believe even AI startups uh, didn't grab a lot of large tickets. But in general, for sure, AI companies are riding the wave and uh, like a buzz factor, which you could compare to what happened in the blockchain space uh, a few years back. And it's uh, not necessarily only good, meaning that a lot of companies get funded that shouldn't get funded, where they are not always answering the question of should this be built and is this the team that uh, is going to be able to success make this successful. And you're seeing this uh, firsthand, right, through the projects that are coming your way. Do you have a uh, favorite project you're working on at the moment? Oh, <laughs> well, I would say for me personally, it is uh, the blockchain and AI things that I do like to contribute to. And there's a lot of good energy there. Uh, but I, I would bring out Estonian AI virtual assistant program, which is a bureaucrat. And uh, the reason is that working with the government has a lot of uh, bad uh, reputation in Estonia and also elsewhere, because uh, government institutions can, they can be big and they can be slow in their decision-making, yeah. which is one of the reasons why we do work with smaller companies and startups, because you can work directly with decision-makers and uh, it's their it's their baby. The startup is their baby. So they will give you answers in a matter of minutes. You don't have to wait for weeks, which might be the case in some uh, larger corporations. Uh, sometimes this is just how the game works, right? But in case of the Estonian government virtual assistant powered by artificial intelligence, I know a lot of passwords there, but <laughs> I will explain. Okay. Uh, the team is uh, very motivated and everything is built out in the open. So all the code that we or any of the other partners have built for the uh, Estonia, this is uh, public. It's not only open source, but you can see all lines of code and all the tasks that are related to them, including 
all the decision-making process in why these tasks even exist and what would have been the other options. So the ideation is in public, the analysis is in public, building is in public, and that makes it quite interesting approach and makes this very startupy vibes even in a government project. So what, what, what does it do? In Estonia, where you are going to communicate with any of public sector entities from uh, the ministries, police, border guard, but also down to local municipalities asking for anything related to kindergartens, your first line of communication will be with the uh, AI chatbot. And you can do this uh, today already with text, but the voice will be added later. Today, it's only in Estonian. In the future, it will be in multiple languages, basically anything that is being talked by people living in Estonia. And because of the way the Estonian government infrastructure is built, which means that every entity gives access to their endpoints and uh, does uh, their data, then the chatbot can answer very complex queries based on your persona. So you will identify yourself and you can ask, like, can I build on my land? And the chatbot would, would tell you that you own these three pieces of land. Which one do you mean? Then you would select one of them and it would give you the maybe yes or no answer, but maybe it would come with certain limitations, whereas uh, it might be like a guarded area. So there might be limitations to the size of or the height of what you can build. And uh, you can uh, then uh, go on to ask for the permit if it's necessary or if you're talking about the kindergarten, you can put your kid to the queue. So basically you're consuming the government services from within the chatbot. And there is not in like a success case, there is not a human uh, counterparty involved in the process. Of course, there is a customer service agents who are people who can help you if the AI is not able to solve the issue. But this interference percentage is just dropping all the time because uh, the AI chatbots are being trained to understand and learn about all of the cases. And one more thing to note is that this, this being open development and the code being open source, private sector can also tap into the code base and the, they can uh, deploy it for themselves to train the models using their own data to just first answer the frequently asked questions, which is actually what most of the people contact support. Uh, they're just lazy. They don't want to go to the documentation so they will ask the customer service agents but customer service agents then they already use very automated scripts to answer those questions so they might miss some of the context that ai will not miss because ai uh, will language models might even understand the questions in some cases uh, better than humans because they, they have larger amount of context for the person especially when they're already authenticated within their uh, chat flow and uh, that's what we are seeing uh, today already that there's growing interest uh, from Estonia and also elsewhere to deploy a bureaucrat uh, AI virtual assistant to first of all do their customer service part but uh, why not uh, take it uh, further so when did you start working on this we have been involved uh, since early this year so the whole project is rather new. How many companies are working on that? Uh, the general procurement, I think, was uh, participated by 24 different companies in Estonia, including mm -hmm. all the powerhouses that we have here. Uh, but uh, the way it works is in mini procurements. So most of the mini procurements don't have uh, all of the companies participating. In fact, it's just a few, few companies that take part in those uh, small bites. And what is the major challenge you're facing at the moment in this project? Uh, the 
whole infrastructure complexity obviously is uh, rather high because the amount of companies and amount of people working together have all contributed to this open development platform stack, which uh, has become a lot of information. And then uh, now to pull it all together and deploy it, uh, make it work. It, I mean, it's a project that is already live and people are already using it, uh, but uh, the amount of complexity is growing uh, rapidly. So to manage that on the deadlines and keeping everybody happy. That is the challenge for, more so for the government than for us, but uh, we, we, we are feeling the challenges as well. Yeah, because I guess there are lots of gray areas and then either everyone contributes or no one contributes because it's so great. This takes time, I guess, just to decide, okay, who's doing what, right? In a certain way. The other question here is, how is it helping? Like, how is the fact that everything is pretty much uh, digital in Estonia, right? And everything is integrated. Um, and going back to Callum's episode, so if, if you haven't listened to it, just listen to it to know what we're talking about somehow. <laughs> so I'm just telling everyone where we talk about the integration of like the hospital with the government, with the bank, with the school, like everything's integrated, which goes back a bit to the uh, example you've given, right? If like I want it like to build on my land, which piece of land it knows it already. But the fact that everything is digital is making it somehow, I'm not going to say easy, but a bit easier. Let's say you were to do that in another country where none of this exists. How would you have started? Mm, but, well, indeed, a lot of the things that Estonia already has are prerequisite. And the uh, first one is uh, secure digital identity. So... If you don't have a digital identity in the country, that's where I would need to start. But uh, to really deploy nationwide system where everybody has uh, some sort of way to authenticate to the government, it goes past uh, technical challenges, obviously. And for a smaller country like Estonia, where we started from scratch uh, a little more than 30 years ago, we didn't have any infrastructure that just uh, went uh, correctly because we had the right people in the right seats to make the good decisions. Uh, they obviously didn't see everything that is going to happen uh, and uh, how some of those things are going to be deployed. But we all carry uh, a smart uh, chip device, which has a private yeah. key on it, where we can uh, sign uh, our uh, documents, we can, we can sign uh, our wishes, and that way securely communicate with the government. So this is uh, something uh, that needs to exist for building out any really complex government informational systems on top of. But the others, other part is uh, X-Road. X-Road is kind of like a service bus where every government institution gives access to their uh, endpoints and uh, the data can be consumed from there. If the government entities don't make it available to access the information that they hold somewhere in their data centers, if they don't make them available online uh, by any means, then uh, this kind of huge ecosystem where uh, stuff starts working together cannot be built either. So. Uh, in a way, we are uh, lucky because of some smart uh, decisions made before us that uh, we can even uh, think about building something like that. So I'm, I'm like, uh, unfortunately, I'm not super optimistic about uh, larger governments being able to really copy what we are doing here. Uh, but private institutions can because they can uh, navigate their ship uh, and turn it uh, much faster than governments can. Governments will have to get a buy-in from their people. And they, 
it might just so happen that even uh, deploying digital identity to everybody will become impossible for a lot of countries. Yeah, I mean, Estonia is, is it 1.1 million or 1.3 million? We are like 1.3, 1.4, somewhere, somewhere in between that, yeah. Yeah, so that's why, as you said, started uh, 30 years ago, like building this whole digital society, a digital identity. And, and I mean, going back, yeah, to larger governance, I, going to back, you were saying, I would add to it, like the fact that lots of people will lose their jobs because they have uh, given sometimes jobs that are not really needed also, and also because of the corruption. Uh, so maybe that would not work for only, only for those reasons. Deep, forgetting about the complexity of some other like uh, things, but also infrastructure. So I guess you're lucky in that sense somehow to make things work. Just some might argue, I, I I don't know how do people perceive this in Estonia or I mean people who were born let's say thirty years ago, twenty years ago, right, whatever. Do they see this um, as a threat or as something great because they're just moving on with their lives and not wasting time where they don't need to? Because putting this in another country, they would say, no, I'm being tracked. I'm, I'm talking about the average citizen, right? How is it perceived? And how are you like keeping on improving it also? Because you said you're facing challenges. Well, I think Estonians are very spoiled in the way they uh, communicate with their government. I mean, uh, taxis have been online uh, over 20 years. Uh, elections are about the same. I don't even remember which one was first, but one of them was in the end of 90s already was the first pilot project to communicate with the government online with something that is really significant. And if there was an Estonian who for some reason uh, would uh, think that uh, their privacy is spoiled, uh, they can still do taxes on paper. They can still go to cast their vote for local and uh, government elections on spot on an election booth, but, but they don't really because, okay. uh, because of the convenience. Yeah. And for me, like it's been for me the entire life that uh, I'm doing my taxes online and to really understand the position that I am in, I just need to talk to someone from the States uh, about doing their taxes. And uh, You shouldn't go uh, too the... far. You can just stay in Europe, I think, and you will be... <laughs> Yeah. Probably, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, in that sense, it's, you know, time is a big thing. And yeah, I mean, on the other side of Europe here, it's uh, it's a waste of time just doing your taxes and like taking an appointment or renewing a paper or stuff like that. So uh, I, I get you and you are spoiled indeed, as you said, <laughs> somehow. I have, I've just been taking some, some notes because you've been uh, saying lots of things here. Um, going back to the virtual assistant chatbot that's being built in public. The question is, you, you said it's open source and any private company can just take the code and use it. Any maybe government could do that, but they have lots of work, backend work to do if, uh, you know, their systems are not integrated. Let's put it that way. Why was, I, I know it was not your choice personally, right? Because you, as a company, you'd rather go and build this for different companies, private companies, right? And now you know that they can just copy it. So let's assume they're going to go and copy it. Where, where do they start? How do they pull in their data and just uh, use your code? Uh, the code is not ours. So the code is like, it is open source. So yes. it's in public domain. Yeah. 
And we are just one of the partners who are building it for the Estonian government who is picking up the bill. <laughs> so I would be happy to see a lot of uh, companies building directly on top, top of the stack. And that, that, that way they would contribute back to Estonia and back to the code that we have built as well. I mean, they, they would want to keep at least partially to be backwards compatible, which means that they would not make any changes. And then uh, like, like they, they wouldn't start working from a version that is up uh, today and then completely uh, like be completely oblivious what is happening in the in the main branch, because main, main branch is supported by the government, which uh, for them is free updates if they keep uh, developing close to the to the stack. The easiest way for uh, anybody to really uh, take a hold of the stack is to take a partner that has been working with the stack. So, so that's uh, where I come in for some of those companies that uh, just one thing is keeping the sync between the private sector and the public sector uh, development. Okay, so it was it's designed for scale basically that's the the approach that's been taken and it's a smart approach i guess by the government because they they're going to pull in even more information that will be spread out again in the way citizens will need it right yes hopefully that will be the case uh, sooner rather, rather than later i have a question here let's go back a bit and then we get back to the technical side of things somehow you started coding out of interest right uh, you started the free diving because of interest uh, you st- you got involved into blockchain because of interest you got into ai because you were interested for those who are I will say technical because you can relate to them more. Someone's just curious and interested. Um, how can they get started in uh, not just in coding, but let, let's let's go for um, AI or blockchain, which is about a bit more uh, a bit fancier right now. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right now, I'm teaching a course uh, called uh, Cryptoverse and Beyond, where uh, it's a cohort-based course which uh, gives people peers to learn with and communicate with uh, industry experts, uh, learn from uh, lectures, but also learn by doing, which is uh, massively important. Mm-hmm. You can uh, read a lot of books, watch a lot of YouTube videos, but you don't, you really memorize things and uh, get real understanding if you, if you play with the technology. It can be from the user point of view. Like if you think about the AI, like just using AI is a skill. You need to know how to communicate with it, like what kind of prompts you should uh, ask and in what order to apply those prompts. And then uh, what do you do with the results that come out? And the same thing goes for coding. That If your direction is to write code, then just need to get your hands dirty, whatever means uh, possible. But today, if uh, someone is going to get started, it's great to have a mentor to really ask questions and uh, to do so every time you get stuck because you might just uh, Google something that is trivial for someone else who is a few years ahead of you in this uh, journey. And having a builder's mentality, that's most important thing, I, I believe. So what? Uh, where are you teaching this? Is it yourself? 
Right. No, I just uh, I was invited to join a group of uh, teachers. Okay, I'll be putting the link after in sure. the description because you said it's a cohort base. Who is it for? It's for uh, everybody who wants to get involved in Web3. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, technical, but also non-technical. It's for people who are complete beginners, but it will have more advanced topics as well. Uh, for example, like development of smart contracts that's included in the course. I, be- I believe everybody will find... Uh, something that is suitable for their level. Okay, so it's a cohort based with different people, you were saying. I'm just going to go back to one of the posts you had on uh, LinkedIn here. I'll say, building great software product is hard. And you're mentioning the book but uh, by Marty Kagan, and you said, experiment and learn, understand customer needs, balance innovation and execution, roadmaps should be flexible and adaptable. Cross-functional teams work collaboratively. I'm not going to read all of them, but each one of these is really tough because there are different levels of experimenting and learning. For someone, it might mean something. For someone else, something else. Understand customer needs. This is also where I, you know, I work with lots of startups and I tell them, did you talk to potential customers? Did you explore? Yeah, we spoke to one. We just tried to understand and it ended here for like kind of forever almost. It's like, no, like you should always go back because it's always data that we need. And we talk about data in different ways, but it's what to do with the data here. So what's your experience working with startups? Because I'm going back to what you were saying, which is something about, is this something we need to build and that should be built? How are the decisions made there? Did you manage to convince someone like, you know what, don't waste your time, don't waste your money because you don't really know what you're doing? I'm like 100% sure that I've convinced some people not to build. Okay. And in most cases, uh, it has come down to me uh, giving them alternatives to solve their problem. And this alternative might not be just a competitor that's doing exactly the same. It might be a slightly different route. But as you and I were both consultants, um, we we give advice. But the one who is uh, implementing it is uh, responsible of how they take the advice. For example, talking to the customers uh, when and if they are going to do it. And not everybody will find value in all pieces of advice that we give them. But the best part of my job is to sometimes tell them things that they haven't come up with by themselves at all. It might be obvious for some who have been building a lot of products, but for others who are maybe first time in the product building journey, or they have taken different routes to get there, building differently in the past, maybe with success, maybe without, then uh, for them to get this perspective, it can be very helpful. And I know you might be getting lots of projects now where it's like, yeah, and we use AI and we use AI, right? And we use AI and AI again. And AI is not really new. I mean, it's been there for ages. Uh, we've been using AI. I mean, I think pretty much everyone who uses a computer has been using AI somehow uh, in different aspects. And there's a difference between AI and generative AI. So... How would you explain the two from like your perspective, which is, and I want you to be technical, but accessible (laughs) here uh, to people who built or who want to build something in a small company or a big big company. How would you differentiate both? You're totally correct that AI has been building in the background way, way back in the 50s already. So the journey of uh, artificial intelligence is not something that popped out uh, yesterday and now everybody's uh, crazy and excited about it. Yep. There's one major thing that did happen was that ChatGPT made something 
that already existed and what was already used, the large scale language models, it made it super accessible for everyone. And uh, that could have not happened uh, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, not even five years ago. Uh, because one of the things that is involved in that process in training those models and making them accessible is compute. So we, we didn't have uh, the computing power to build so uh, complicated and powerful models and deploy them to be used by millions of people at the same time before uh, pretty much where we are today. And uh, the innovation here actually is still in the user experience side. So uh, people started finding it valuable. It started helping them solve all kinds of tasks. And that's the reason uh, why we are in this kind of AI boom at the moment. What's your uh, standpoint again? Going back to Gen AI or like not Gen AI in, in that sense, when we talk about prediction. Uh, well, that would, that would not be like a Gen AI task. That would be some yes, uh, yes. more basic uh, machine learning and uh, data task. For sure, uh, for machines to find uh, patterns in a large uh, set of data, they are much more efficient in that uh, com compared to humans. And uh, predictions is just that, to take uh, what has happened in the past and try to predict what could happen in the future. But uh, nothing is of certain. So, so the, our world is not built on certainties. So the machine learning models will just give uh, every event a probability score. Sometimes it's high, sometimes there may be a weak correlation in the data. And even if the probability is 95%, there's still a 5% chance that the opposite event will uh, happen. And we as people just need to take this uh, data and use it in the best way we can. Do you have any company in mind? Obviously, it's it should be some company that started gathering or collecting data a long time ago and building the algorithms around it. But do you have... Um, a company in mind that is succeeding in uh, their prediction models, any industry? Well, certainly like uh, finance is one that uh, has uh, created a lot of data all the time and the predictions have very high monetary value. So it's, it's like a race. Most of the trading these days is done by algorithms that are trying to predict what's going to happen next. But even more interestingly, I think it's uh, sports because sports has a nature of unpredictability, which is uh, larger even than the financial markets. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of effort put into uh, sports betting, for example, to understand where a match might go. And uh, if we talk about football, which is one of my favorite sports to follow, there's uh, 11 players on both sides and the dynamics of the teams might change depending on who they are playing. So uh, you can build very good prediction models, but the outcome might be still uh, super surprising for you. Yeah, that's, to be honest, I don't, I, I put it that way. I personally would not put my money on betting for a football game. <laughs> it, it's just, I, I just don't get it. If it's human prediction or if it's, uh, you know, AI, I, I just, as you say, it's, it's not, but yet I think what people like is, the adrenaline and going back to the experience side of things, right? This is what they enjoy more than uh, anything. Not the, the results themselves are just uh, is tough. Do you do it? <laughs> Rod camera. Sports betting. 
<laughs> I have I have bet on sports. Yes, uh, I, my my software development career started in a gaming company, so we were building uh, software for online casinos. Oh, yeah. That, that la- and large part of my experience as a consultant is also in that industry. So for sure. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with putting in a bet. Uh, I haven't done it, to be honest, uh, for uh, quite a while. But when I am watching a game and I do have some uh, interest in it, I might just uh, throw in, uh, just for fun, just to throw in a little money to make it even more exciting. So question, do you trust the algorithms or you trust your gut? Uh, I'm a gut-based uh, <laughs> uh, betting man if I, if, I, if I do place a bet. Uh, but at the same time, uh, when I was playing uh, fantasy football uh, back in the like few years ago, I did have a lot of software predictions as well, and I was modeling uh, different teams how they would play against each other, what would be the expected score of one player or another or another. But that was like a game that is not played for money. It's uh, just bragging rights with your friends that you were able to. Uh, I guess uh, what's going to happen in a Premier League game better than they would. How do you train a model? Just talk to a five-year-old, yeah, keep in mind. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the best person to really explain uh, training uh, like a model. So I'm not like an AI developer. So uh, that part, y- y- you would have to ask someone else to explain me like I'm five of uh, training a model. Okay. Oh, so you're So at the moment, you're not... So are you, what is your role? Let's put it that way. When it comes to AR projects, are you more on the strategy side rather than the... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in most of the projects at the moment. I'm like in the product side okay. and uh, like uh, what is what is going to be built and how and the actual implementation details will go to other people. So I don't write too much software in my day-to-day. Okay. Unlike Jano, who does that over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jano definitely writes more software than I do. Okay. What is it that you enjoy the most? Because you started off as a coder and you're still in the space. Obviously, you're more on the product side, but on the technical product development aspect of things. In big buzzing technologies, basically blockchain and AI. What is it that you enjoy the most doing? And this can be like yourself or with your team or with uh, collaborators like external. I have always enjoyed building stuff. When I was a sole contributor as a software developer, I just took pride in the code that I'm able to write and the features that I'm able to put out there. But if you a little bit get more experience and you start managing teams, your output starts feeling larger because uh, when you put out the task and uh, then someone else might uh, implement part of it, you will just feel that uh, the scale of uh, contribution just uh, grows. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when you run a consultancy and consult different uh, projects and products into what and how to build, then uh, you can scale it even uh, further. So like, I feel that I'm contributing to a lot of different products and projects that are uh, building. And that's the, that's the main thing that the, the benefits that they bring to their uh, users, essentially, this, that's what we are in this game for. So I guess in your day-to-day job, and I'm making an assumption here, and I'm someone who does not like assumptions, and I say assumptions are the worst thing, <laughs> but there we go. I'm making an assumption here. I'm, you must be facing lots of uh, misconceptions around uh, AI or around blockchain technologies when someone comes to you. And for you, like if you imagine your heart is someone like squeezing it, like don't tell me this, how many times I'm going to repeat this in my head, right? What are some of the common misconceptions 
uh, you come across. Okay, that's a that's a great one. And actually, I would say that blockchain and AI are in that regard uh, quite different, meaning that with AI, people have uh, come to expect uh, more than it is uh, capable, that uh, it will solve all of their problems and they can deploy it everywhere uh, for every case. And uh, even that they should deploy it everywhere with every case, it's kind of like a fear of missing out. My competitors are building with AI, so I have to as well. Maybe they don't even have a case that is great for AI. Maybe they don't have even the data to to make the predictions. Maybe the language model is not great uh, help to solve any of their use cases or business problems. So they might uh, <coughs> overestimate what they can do with uh, with AI. Uh, so on the other hand, like blockchain, which um, on the core brings you uh, decentralization and ownership of uh, data. So you can you can start owning digital uh, pieces of uh, information, but at the same time they are programmable. So you can build a lot of very complex uh, things on top of blockchain. And the people who come to uh, like who come with an idea to build something, they don't always see all of the opportunity that uh, is out there. Of course, uh, we have to keep in mind the complexity. So we have to manage the end user's ability to interact with uh, anything that we are building. And uh, I guess you, you have lots of also things that come your way or get thrown because it's it's about building products, right? I think there's something uh, or, or there's lack of uh, knowledge that each time you make a tweak or you want to change something, it impacts a lot of things that are in the back end even more than the front end sometimes. And this is something you face frequently? The more complex the project is, obviously there are more moving parts there are, mm -hmm. uh, but the best uh, software is built uh, modularly. So uh, you try to keep the moving parts uh, separate as possible. So updating uh, like uh, user management, for example, wouldn't interfere with if we talk about uh, maybe we have some predictions, so the prediction model would, wouldn't be affected and just to split it out as early as possible in the most uh, meaningful way and keep in mind all the time when you keep developing that the nature of software changes. So you might also need to change the architecture that you're running it on top of. Last thing here I want to ask, how do you see, I'm asking you to predict here, <laughs> kind of. how do you see your work evolving over the next few years? I know it's a tough one, you don't have answers, but how... But based on what you know now and the trends that you're seeing coming, you know, we read about them all the time. Where do you see that you're going to be heading to? What are you preparing for? For sure, we are preparing for growth in usage of AI tools. As there are there are some low-hanging fruits there, some problems that can be solved with just uh, integrating with ChatGPT, which is uh, still by far the best uh, language model available uh, out there, both accuracy, uh, speed, but also cost. So uh, there is a lot of applications that can go that way. And uh, for that, we are uh, organizing a hackathon in uh, September in Tallinn. It's a real uh, live event, people coming together, which uh, hasn't happened that much in the last few years, right? Yeah. And uh, now, it, now it's coming back. So we are happy to be uh, involved. On the other side, I think blockchain use cases uh, are going to grow. We're going to start seeing more and more actual real-world benefits, 
which will uh, then fuel people's imagination even further of uh, what can be built and what can be achieved. And today, uh, a lot of like effort in uh, blockchain development and blockchain applications is on the infrastructure side to build the tools for coding and to build platforms to gather and manipulate information, but also the base layers themselves that we have a lot of uh, layer one and scaling solutions and layer twos to attract developers but less so and uh, that is the reality actually that applications that everyday people use to change the life for the better the scale is not yet there but as was with ai we just had one very large success case with the uh, chat gpt i think there is a pretty big likelihood that the same thing will happen with blockchain and uh, we will start also seeing overlap in those two domains I've been thinking about that uh, like uh, quite a bit, like where can blockchain support AI and where AI can support blockchain. And for sure, one problem that we have with generative AI is the authenticity of content out there. Like, is this video that we're recording right now, are Maria and Robert really people? Or did we just uh, give our digital avatars and we told them to have a chat for our... So that's something that uh, blockchain could be used for to us, like as uh, people we would we would sign those pieces of content somehow that prove that we were the actual people behind this uh, chat and uh, for sure there is vice versa options as well so i'm super excited for the next uh, few years much more so excited than scared okay it's interesting what you mentioned because it's something i've been thinking about but more on the uh, ownership side because for sure they're linked right Linked. I mean, you can combine them together and do lots of things. And um, w- when you talk about data, no matter what uh, the data it is, who owns what if there's a gray area? And how would you put this on the blockchain? Yeah, well, in the <laughs> yeah, social media yeah. platforms that we are using uh, today, they, they own the data. So if you put it out there, they can do whatever they want with the, with it. If you're talking about web free social, then the user owns the data and they can also monetize it the way they do, the way they, they see fit. So uh, people might be paying you for their, for your tweet in the future. Uh, if they put a like, maybe you get a micropayment. Maybe that's where Elon is heading to. But... <laughs> He's probably somewhere in the middle. Okay. And uh, at times it seems like he is not sure himself either. So the, the question is, yeah, I'm, I'm, let's assume this podcast, right? Got Talks. Uh, we're hosting it on different platforms, uh, obviously. And it's you and I having this uh, conversation. Who owns what? I clearly don't have a contract with every guest who comes, right? Because we're having a conversation. But it's not about who owns what. We have the platform. We have yourself and I. And this goes on. Now, you know, usually when you come on a podcast, it's just to have a, you know, conversation, whatever. And, but if we think in this respect, if you're generating data from uh, talking, any kind of content or from uh, measuring something with uh, other tools or, or hardware or it doesn't matter, what is the, the balance like if everything is on the blockchain and something will be done with it? What would happen? I, I don't know if my question is clear. It's just thinking out loud. I don't know. Yeah, I think I get it. I, I, to me, whoever produces it should be the owner of it. And uh, t- I mean, the production process might be very complex and tricky. 
if we were uh, building out the movie, for example, we would have uh, actors, we would have uh, voiceovers, we would have technicians, we would have uh, special effects, uh, audio producers, directors, you, you name yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a whole group of people involved. And we would also have investors uh, mm -hmm. to fund the movie. So uh, I would think that everybody owns this. Yeah. And uh, it, like it's a fractional ownership. So when this kind of uh, streaming uh, platform user actually gives a peek and watches the whole thing, then they will also pay uh, like a fractional payment for it. And that will be divided by all of the owners and all of the owners of that movie who created it. Maybe the sound guy uh, needs some funds and he sells his uh, or her shares in the open market and everybody else can see what was the going price. So they can decide accordingly, do I want to buy or do I want to sell my shares? And that kind of open economy is uh, one of the futures of blockchain uh, supported internet infrastructure that I see. Uh, we actually came to a really good example. And thank you for taking us there uh, that uh, all, all content in the world, uh, I think, uh, will benefit from this kind of process where everything is transparent. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, problems that come from uh, the data and the movement of funds being somewhere hidden. A lot of people with power grab a larger share than they should, and uh, they make everybody else dependent on that. Whilst the creators, some of whom might be super talented, have a smaller chance to get out there. But now uh, we have already now the infrastructure in place. Now we need those applications. And those applications need to tackle uh, the movie making, the music industry, the broadcasting, but uh, everything from there, uh, including uh, producing of software, will be affected. Where maybe in the future we are not companies, we are we are DAOs. So everybody's contributing their uh, small bit for both the private sector and the government projects, and everybody's contribution can be tracked back to blockchain activities. Uh, so we will have a lot of new challenges, but that's the future I do support for sure. Yeah, we will. And you will keep building. And uh, th that's I like how you, you put it together because it's something I've been um, thinking about a lot. And, you know, for the example you, you gave, if someone sells one NFT, will get royalty for life, you know, things like that. It's This is where the whole beauty and magic of Web3, where things can come together. And... Uh, and it's true, like that's that's the beef. You know, you're posting on LinkedIn, I'm posting on LinkedIn, but whoever benefits is only LinkedIn, right? This is just one example. But also on ChatGPT, everyone's feeding so much data. Um, are you? By the way, that's the last thing I want to ask you. As like that's the question I like to ask uh, software developers, and I get I asked Yano, for example, and Yano's answer was no because his code is cleaner. Do you use ChatGPT? I know you're not coding, but your team or are you pushing them to use ChatGPT for code? Uh, when I do code, I use ChatGPT and a lot of people in my team as well. I for sure encourage. Uh, uh, there is a lot of uh, places where you can use ChatGPT or other AI-based tools. There are more specific uh, code-related uh, uh, tools out there that uh, integrate directly with the development environment that the developers use to produce code. And uh, one of them is just generating this data, for example. So you you are you you have built a, like an application that has a certain feature set that takes in maybe a group of podcasts with their uh, attributes. So you, your one option is to just go out there and look for different podcasts and uh, type out the data structure to to test it out. But you can just tell the chat GPT that this is my uh, format. 
give me hundreds, give me a thousand different uh, options with different data and then send it back in. And you can generate the test cases as well that use this uh, bogus data because you don't really you don't really care exactly what is in the data sometimes. You just need to see if the code runs uh, with uh, different amounts of uh, data going through it. Yeah, I, I asked about ChatGPT because you, you said you think it's the best so far. Uh, but yeah, there are every day we have new. Let's see which ones will survive. I think that's, uh, that's well, many of them are actually built on top of ChatGPT. Like most of them are built on top of ChatGPT these days that are any good. So even the coding ones, uh, their, their backend is, uh, is still ChatGPT. So your question was uh, fully relevant. Okay. Cool. Uh, Robert, is there anything else we didn't talk about that you would like to talk about? Uh, I think we covered a lot of AI, a lot of product development. Uh, which was uh, slightly unexpected for me that, that that we took that route, but I'm uh, I'm glad because this is a uh, close to heart, and I know I know I can be very political in my answers sometimes, but I really like how we ended it with a really concrete use case uh, for the blockchain. Cool, awesome! Thank you so much. Thank you, Maria. It starts with the gut. It ends with the gut. It's in your gut. Gut talks. <laughs>